Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Ear Read This, Edinburgh's most powerful book podcast. On my last couple of episodes, I've been joined by Shakespearean scholar Darren Freebury-Jones to talk about The Spanish Tragedy by Thomas Kidd, and most recently The Birth of Merlin by William Rowley. Today, I'm joined by Darren for a third time to talk about his own work, including his new book, Shakespeare's Tutor, The Influence of Thomas Kidd. I'm currently playing catch-up on a lot of the uh, podcast interviews I've recorded, so this was recorded a while ago now. Darren was uh, in the midst of working on the book. The good news is that the book is now out, and I'll leave a link to where you can get yourself a copy in the episode description box below. To kick things off, I asked Darren when he first became interested in Thomas Kidd and early modern authorship studies. So when I was an undergraduate at um, Cardiff University, I, I was... I was doing a module on um, bibliography uh, mm. in my third year, um, in my third year. Uh, and I, I was introduced to the book of Sir Thomas More, um, which, which is this multi-authored play that, um, that, that Shakespeare uh, contributed to. Um, and the edition of, of that play that I had was the uh, 2005 Oxford Shakespeare edition um, and the text was edited by John Jowett. And what I found fascinating was that uh, Jowett's editorial choices went some way to replicating the manuscript of that play. Um, so, so it offered uh, readers the opportunity to uh, distinguish the hands of different authors, uh, censors, uh, and professional scribes. So you, you know, you could really see the stitching in this um, in this collaborative play, and so I I, I just became fascinated by um, by that task of discriminating playwrights. Uh, you know, it might not be everyone's cup of tea or uh, how people want to spend an afternoon, but I I, I don't know. I I guess it was like the the detective work um, really appealed to me, um, and and at that stage as an undergraduate, those, those salad days, uh, I I was somewhat ignorant of the the computational methods um, that, that attribution scholars uh, now have at their disposal. So I spent a long time just reading the plays um, and trying to get like an ear and an eye uh, for, for different um, dramatists' styles, uh, different different authorial voices, um, just, just through attentive and, and wide-ranging reading. And then I... I I wrote my uh, MA dissertation at Cardiff University on uh, Shakespeare Apocrypha, um, which, which included uh, the birth of Merlin um, and included uh, plays like uh, Edward III uh, and Arden of Faversham. And, and I was struck um, time and time again by this sense of individual voices uh, breaking through the passages uh, of anonymous text. And it wasn't long uh, before I realized that some of the, the conclusions I, I, I reached uh, during those early studies uh, had been anticipated by, by scholars for over two centuries. Um, and one of the, the conclusions I reached during my, my MA was that the, the evidence for Shakespeare's hand in, in Arden of Faversham paled in comparison to, to the evidence for, for kids' authorship and that there was a more interesting story to tell there uh, about Shakespeare's uh, dramatic development uh, and processes of 
uh, imitatio and, and aural actor memory and, uh, and that kind of thing. And so, long story short, um, I guess that's how how I was I was introduced to kids. Uh, and I and I really do think he is he is the most fascinating uh, figure who, who was really key to unlocking our understanding of, of, of Shakespeare's development uh, as a playwright and the, and the rise and, and progression and evolution of commercial drama uh, in Elizabethan England. Why do you think it is that Kidd is takes takes third or fourth position behind behind not just Shakespeare but the likes of likes of Marlowe because once you start as as we as we've done even today thinking about where these plays lie he, he seems like he should he should be right at the top top billing mm, that that's a great question i mean there's so many reasons um there's a, a scholar named rebecca rowins who's written a, a fantastic uh, phd thesis in which she shows that while we owe frederick s Boas uh, a, a debt for producing the only um, edition of Kidd's works in 1901, Boas actually did almost irreparable damage uh, to Kidd's reputation. And this is, this is largely because he and, and other scholars um, of, of, the, uh, of the late 19th and the early uh, 20th century were more concerned with Marlowe's story. Uh, and, and, and therefore, in, in bigging Marlowe up in that narrative, uh, they kind of wanted to push his his roommate in London, uh, Thomas Kids, uh, down uh, and show him in a less favourable light. Uh, so I'm, I'm hoping Rebecca Owens will, will publish that thesis uh, as a book. Uh, and you know, Kid uh, Kid remains less sexy than Marlowe in most readers' eyes, I think, and you know, certainly less sexy than Shakespeare. I was going to ask you actually earlier when when we were talking about the Spanish tragedy, it. I might have read this completely wrong, but it it seems to me like like it's it's studied quite wild quite widely uh, in classrooms. Is it performed as much? Because I I, hadn't, I didn't find half as much about performances of mm. the Spanish tragedy as I did about students studying it and reading it. Mm. I've not seen it in performance. Um, yeah. th- there have been there have been performances by the likes of the the Royal Shakespeare Company and. Uh, I think Michael Bogdanov, incredible theatre director, um, uh, directed a production of the, of the Spanish tragedy. But no, it, it's not performed frequently. Uh, certainly not. I, I've not yet been able to, to see a production of it, and I would love to uh, to, to see it. I asked a colleague once who, who had seen a, a production, and they just said, "Oh, it was stunning," because that staging, mm-hmm. that that multi-pattern staging, was was still just you know something to behold as an audience member. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd absolutely love to see it as well. Mm. I, I, want, I wanted to ask uh, a little bit more about the, the tension between Kidd and Shakespeare. And I, I'm really interested in how how people sort of, um, what's the right word, have, have this complicated protective relationship about Shakespeare studies and, some, and how it sometimes gets a little bit competitive when any, anyone else's name is brought into the mix. Mm. And I, I read a little bit about this when I, I did an episode recently on Edward III and mm. the authorship conversations around that play. Mm. You, you mentioned that uh, towards people like yourself or, or Brian Vickers, there's a detectable resistance mm. to the idea of an expanded kid canon. Mm. Um, where do you think that comes from? Oh, um, again, it, it, it's complex, but 
we have, we have to go back several several decades, I think. Um, so, of course, I mentioned uh, that kind of narrative of of, um, of of kid presented by the likes of Frederick S. Bowers, but then uh, you actually had a a brief uh, resurgence in, in kid scholarship, I think, where um, scholars all over the world uh, started making pretty comprehensive cases, I think, for, for enlarging kids' canon um, in, in the um, late 19th and early to mid 20th century, actually. Uh, and so there was actually a, a point where the likes of plays like Arden Faversham and the true chronicle history of King Lear, which of course was a, a, a dramatic source for Shakespeare, were, were regarded as being kids um, by, by a consensus of scholars. And so there was a very different picture of kids uh, presented to um, scholarship and, uh, and, and to readers than, than perhaps we, we witness today. But then in, in 1963, Macdonald P. Jackson uh, dismissed the case for, for kids' sole authorship of, of Ardner Faversham uh, in an Oxford thesis, uh, where he first argued for Shakespeare's hand in the play. Uh, and in, even in that thesis, um, Jackson claimed that all of the evidence in, in favor of kids' authorship was practically worthless. Uh, and, and this is a, a, a claim that Jackson has held on to for, for decades since. Um, and what Jackson tends to do is make out that early modern authorship studies is a horse race. You know, all the horses have to be equal. So early modern authors, authors are... Um, they're essentially horses in the Grand National. Uh, but, but really, I think Jackson, since 1963, has only been backing one horse, uh, and that's Shakespeare. Um, and, and I think scholars should be willing to uh, revise their hypotheses. And I think there's a much more interesting uh, scholarly narrative uh, in terms of Shakespeare's overwhelming debts to kids uh, and, and his development as, as a playwright. And so decades later, uh, Oxford University Press have, have accepted Jackson's arguments uh, and they've included uh, Ardner Faversham in that edition. It's worth pointing out, by the way, that Jackson is uh, Jackson was actually a member of that edition's attribution board um, that, that decided to, to include that edition. Uh, and then you've got um, an, an accompanying volume published in 2017 called the New Oxford Shakespeare Authorship Companion, uh, which lays out some of the in, uh, some of the evidence for the inclusion of Arden Faversham. And that volume has been uh, criticized by a wonderful scholar and, and physicist named Joseph Rudman, uh, for, you know, who really knows his stuff when it, when it comes to uh, uh, methodologies and, and, and data. Uh, he's, he's criticized that volume for containing uh, methodological flaws and statistical faux pas. Uh, in general, uh, and the scholar uh, William Proctor Williams observes that 13 of the 25 essays in this volume are, are written or, or co-written by people on the advisory board uh, I mentioned earlier, which inspires very little confidence in the fairness and objectivity of, of what is published here. So, so the reality is, and uh, it, it's plain for, for anyone to see, that there's there's two opposing positions in early modern authorship attribution studies, right? Uh, and you've got Brian Vickers on the one side 
and then you've got the new Oxford Shakespeare team on the other. So it's not surprising that Vickers's arguments for an extended kid canon uh, are heavily criticised throughout the authorship companion. And I think I think we've got to a point in the field. I, I, I genuinely think this is the state of the field where many authorship scholars uh, are more interested in proving their so-called rivals wrong. And, you know, there's a very long history uh, between the likes of Brian Vickers, McDonough Jackson and Gary Taylor uh, than necessarily getting us closer to, to the truth uh, or, or, or as close to the truth uh, as we can get um, within the confines of um, the field of, of early modern authorship studies. And I, I think that's a pity because I've, I've got so much admiration for, for the likes of um, McDonald P. Jackson and Gary Taylor. I think they're incredible scholars who deeply influenced me and, and, and you know, really um, helped to spark my, my interest in, in Shakespeare textual studies and, and early modern attribution studies. But what, what I hope is that future scholars will, when they come to read uh, books or articles uh, on, on the subject of, of um, kids canon and, and other um, authorship issues. I hope they'll look past the, the rhetoric and the, the slights of hands in published work on the subject uh, and that they'll see that the, the slings and arrows cast in these battles, if you will. Um, I, I think, I hope they'll see that those those debates, those arguments have served, served to consolidate the case uh, for an enlarged kid canon, uh, to consolidate his position as a major dramatist of the period, uh, and to reshape our understanding of the rise of commercial drama in the late 1580s and early 1590s, and of Shakespeare's dramaturgical development. Uh, and where, in your view, or, or how far short, in your view, does the accepted kid canon fall of what you think it should contain? Oh, um, quite significantly, I think. Uh, Kids has three accepted plays um, as, as being sole authored works. So you've got the Spanish tragedy, uh, you've got Solomon and Poseidon, um, and then you've got Cornelia, uh, which is his translation of a, um, a French closet drama uh, by Robert Garnier. Uh, so that's three plays. I'd be inclined to give him six sole authored plays. Uh, so I, I would also include the true chronicle history of King Lear, uh, Arden of Faversham, and a play called Fair M, the Miller's Daughter of Manchester. Um, and, and I'd also be inclined to add two co-authored plays to that, uh, Edward III uh, and Henry VI, part one. So you've got a canon of eight there out of, out of three plays. Three plays is a fairly small body of evidence, but then Kidd is quite distinctive in, in, in many respects. Um, for instance, he's he's unique uh, amongst Shakespeare's known dramatic predecessors for, for the large number of feminine endings, um, verse lines concluding in, in extra unaccented syllables uh, in his plays, um, and, and the amount of compound uh, adjectives uh, he employs, like cloud compacted or, or um, hollow eyed or uh, a real uh, cork, if you ash, pinky eyed. Um, pinky eyed. Pinky eyed. So, you know, <laughs> kid, kid in the context of Elizabethan drama was uh, 
uh, an incredibly innovative and um, experimental dramatist. Um, I mean, I've been working on Robert Greene's canon recently, and he's got uh, five plays, I would say, that um, that scholarly consensus recognises uh, as his. He's got four sole-authored plays. So you've got Alphonsus, King of Aragon, uh, Friar Bacon and Friar Bungie, The Scottish History of James IV, and Orlando Furioso. And then you've got a co-authored play with Thomas Lodge called A Looking Glass for London and England. Uh, and I think I've, I'm in the process of making a pretty solid case that we can expand his canon to seven plays, um, in, including the tragedy Salimus, uh, which I argue is another co-authored play with Thomas Lodge, uh, and Lucreen, um, which, which, is, um, which is always... Uh, generated some interest the cream because of course it was included in a an edition of Shakespeare's plays um, so you know there, there's a lot of work going on with with the expansion of, of um, Elizabethan dramatist canons and I think it it's it's just fascinating to see the ways in which we can read those canons in terms of their historical and, and dramaturgical uh, significance um, so so yes I, I think the accepted kid canon is is uh, quite short of of what I I expect to be accepted uh, at some point uh, further down the line. Uh, do you mind me asking a bit more? about you mentioned your um, uh, your book earlier. Was it, did you say it was called Shakespeare's Tutor? Yes, working title. Yeah. I'm hoping I'll be working able to title. Do that. Yeah. Well, it's a it's an intriguing one. Do you, do you mind me asking a little bit more about it? I'd love to I'd love to hear about the the process and what got you started. Of course. Um, well, I mean, my PhD thesis was titled "Kid and Shakespeare: Authorship, Influence, and Collaboration." So, so those are the three key words that um, which uh, kind of act as a, as a blurb for the for the book I'm working on, um, which is also quite a departure from, from the PhD thesis, I think. So in, in terms of influence, ju just to anchor um, Kidd and Shakespeare in the, in the theatrical context and, and culture of the period, well, early modern actors had to have magnificent book-like memories. Uh, and the capacious memory that, that Shakespeare uh, needed in order to succeed uh, as an Elizabethan player, uh, meant that he could draw from a variety of plays for the for the verbal details of his works. Um, there's there's a scholar named John Tobin, who notes that because plays were very seldom performed in an uninterrupted run, actors needed powerful memories. It was a time when the aural rather than the visual understanding was much greater. Uh, than in our own time. Uh, but even so, the capacity of actors to hold in their heads a large number of roles from many different plays was extraordinary, and new plays were constantly being added to the repertory. So what I propose in uh, Shakespeare's Tutor is that Shakespeare learned from kids at first through performance uh, and engaging with the uh, older dramatist's work in rehearsal, uh, on stage, uh, and what we might call the, the tiring areas, you know, backstage. And I think what I've shown uh, beyond reasonable doubt is that in terms of um, quantity, quality, and, and distribution, you know, where, where in these texts 
uh, do they occur? Shakespeare's verbal borrowings from, from Arden of Faversham are no more impressive uh, than in the cases of, of other plays attributed to Kidd, uh, you know, be it your Spanish tragedies or your Solomon of Mercedes or, or the contested play, uh, the true chronicle uh, history of King Lear. Uh, and we can test these things using large scale automated methods. So in the case of authorial self-repetition, uh, the, the surrounding text will be demonstrably the, the same in, in terms of lexicon, prosody, uh, and other features of style as the phrase is repeated. Whereas in the case of verbal borrowings, the, the surrounding text is often quite different. Uh, and these phrases will co-occur with plays that are later uh, in time of composition uh, and performance according to the sound chronology. Uh, provided by Martin Wiggins. Um, so I, th I think this is something I, I, I really bang on about um, in my published work and, uh, and in this book. I think we need a plurality of methods uh, in order to make a solid case for, for common authorship of, of what are fundamentally complex literary and performative artifacts. I think the problem is that a lot of attribution scholars are looking for this kind of magic bullets um, approach where, where they're looking for something sub-stylistic, like, like some kind of pattern operating uh, un unconsciously. Um, and I think we need a mixture of old and new, and fundamentally, we, we need to read these plays, you know, not, not just distance read them in, in terms of whacking them into a, into a computer. Um, but I, I guess to, to kind of summarise the narrative of, of the book um, in terms of Ken Shakespeare's relationship, uh, if I were to put on the back of a postcard, uh, I, I argue that two kid plays uh, were, were used by Shakespeare's direct sources for his greatest tragedies, Hamlet and King Lear. Uh, I also argue that Shakespeare revised two of kids' plays, uh, The Spanish Tragedy uh, and Harry the Sex. Um, which, which is known as Henry VI Part One in the first folio. Uh, and I also argue that, that he collaborated directly with kids uh, on Edward III. So that, that's an incredibly substantial relationship. Uh, and, and, and so I think an acknowledgement of kids' restored canon could help us to understand the development of Shakespeare's dramaturgy. And I think the kids' influence on early Shakespeare was almost or, or just as profound as Marlowe's. And it's not surprising that in the case of plays like the domestic tragedy Arden of Faversham, which has been attributed to, to kids since 1891, uh, scholars, scholars are struggling to distinguish kid and Shakespeare's styles. Well, fascinating. Well, I, I can't wait to um, have my hands on a copy. I can't wait to finish it. <laughs> yeah. I've got to finish the green book at the moment. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm deep into green and then I'll, uh, I'll return to, to Shakespeare's tutor. Speaking of, uh, speaking of green and other um, uh, uh, contemporary uh, playwrights, I've really enjoyed your, your, the series you've done on Twitter of, of speeches. You've uh, taken an alphabetical journey through <laughs> through some of the, some of the plays we've mentioned actually Adam of Faversham yeah. birth of merlin cropped up um and you're you're quite far along the way now aren't you yeah I'm, probably it will have finished by the time this comes out i imagine i really hope so um <laughs> <laughs> unless you're going back again do you know what it, it was just a, a random instinctive idea i had you know in in this uh 
in this uh, post-COVID world. Uh, why did I do it? I don't know. I, I ask myself every time I have to post one. Um, <laughs> I guess I guess to keep me doing some acting uh, and I guess to broaden my own understanding of um, Shakespeare's contemporaries and, you know, mm. maybe maybe some other people's on, on Twitter. But, you know, I'm, I'm very aware that um, I've got a tendency to just scroll through videos if, if they pop up so you know I'm, I'm aware that uh, they're not necessarily being watched by everybody um but but i think you know if people are interested in hearing those different uh, different voices you know i i think that, yeah. that really helps uh, to enhance our knowledge of shakespeare having having an understanding of um shakespeare's contemporaries and, and i really hope that you know some some of those uh, videos will have got people you know jumping on Wikipedia or, or whatever and just just having a little read and, and, and think about some of those plays or or hoping to learn more. Um, so I'll have, I'll have read 27 speeches uh, by around 30 authors, uh, which I, I posted on Twitter over a six month period. Um, so so, yeah, it's been it's been quite an undertaking. What I find fascinating, you know, I mean, Twitter metrics are a, a complete mystery, really. Um, as, as I imagine, you know, you you know, but so what plays really don't don't have much success in in terms of people don't seem interested in them, and it, it might just be that you know you you've posted that video at tea time and and no one's on their phones at that point or whatever. But like uh, Musidorus, not terribly popular. Ardna Faversham, hugely hugely popular. Um, John Ford went down quite well. Robert Green. Incredibly popular play, Fryer Bacon and Fryer Bungie, not so well. Uh, so you know, it, it's it's just interesting seeing what John Marston was very very popular, and um, people quite like Lording Barry. Uh, I, I did a speech by Lording Barry uh, from Ram Alley uh, because Lording Barry was a pirate as as, as well as a, a playwright, so he's a fascinating figure. Um, but it, it's just interesting to see what plays kind of generate some interest. Uh, on those and it's not necessarily the the plays you might expect but you know I, I did a, a beautiful poem from Thomas Nash's Summer's Last Will and Testament which which is all about the plague and that seems to have resonated because I think that's the great thing about these um, these works is, is they're not fixed they're not frozen in time uh, they they might have slightly different stories to tell depending on where we are in in the uh in the long journey of history or, or how the zeitgeist or, or the cultural milieu might have, might have changed. Well, it certainly got me, me Googling um, several of those plays and, and adding them to shopping baskets as well. <laughs> to read. I, I, I'll put out a podcast thinking, yeah, loads of people read this person. This is, this is going to be a hit. Yeah. This is going to be a podcast making episode. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and no one will no one will listen to it. But something where I think it's really only going to be a couple of crackpots and me that listen to this one uh, suddenly will suddenly will do well. I don't, I, you just can't yeah, you can't it, predict it, can you? Uh, cannot predict yeah. it at all. <laughs> it's also strange as well. I think there is a certain saturation point for popular authors. So if you're doing a if you're doing media about a popular author, you want to get just popular enough. Mm where people are a bit starved for stuff about them. Mm -hmm. If they're searching for uh, podcasts or articles or whatever about a certain author, some, someone like Shakespeare is just, 
you're in a very very crowded room obviously mm, mm. um whereas someone who's who knows maybe i'm maybe kid will will uh, be just just the right level of interest not enough I hope overexposure so. i hope so i've got like this image in my head of one like and it's me <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> Yes, that 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 could be that could be the case. No, there'll, there'll at least be two. <laughs> That's very kind of you. Because <laughs> because I will as well. Uh, oh well, Darren, I've I really enjoyed. Uh, I've got to the end of my questions there, but I've I've really enjoyed having you on. It's been great. It's been an absolute pleasure and a privilege. I've, I've absolutely loved it, Ash. So uh, thank you so much, and and good luck with everything. Oh, thank you. Um, do let me know if I can ever be of use to to anything you're doing in the future uh, and i really hope you i really hope your listeners enjoy the uh, the episode and that's it for today's episode thank you once again to my special guest darren freeby jones if you'd like to get yourself a copy of shakespeare's tutor the influence of thomas kidd or look up more of darren's work there will be links in the episode description box below thank you very much for listening and until next time happy reading mm-hmm.